Hello, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Eglash. This podcast is co-sponsored by the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, as well as the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. The Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine is an international organization of physicians dedicated to the promotion, protection, and support of breastfeeding and human lactation through education and research. Our goal for this podcast series is to help you manage clinical aspects of breastfeeding medicine. We also hope to keep you updated with current research that may impact practice management. Any advice or recommendations in this podcast do not reflect official policies or views of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. I have with me today Dr. Kieran Bodnar, who's a pediatrician with Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a board-certified lactation consultant. Today we're going to talk about two fairly recent studies on breastfeeding, and I think I'll have Karen go first. Hi, Karen. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for joining me. This will be a lot of fun. So it's kind of a new twist on what I've done before, just uh, talking rather about rather than talking about um, clinical uh, practices, talking more about some recent literature. So you have an interesting article to review that's on bottle feeding and the risk of pyloric stenosis. Yes, so um, this study has just been published, actually only so far in the electronic version in pediatrics, and it's a Danish study um, by Camilla Crow, I believe is the pronunciation. It's K-R-O-G-H. And um, this study is addressing bottle feeding and pyloric stenosis, which for those listeners who do not know about pyloric stenosis, is the most common condition requiring surgery in the first months after birth. And um, it essentially is when the muscle which closes the exit of the stomach um, becomes overgrown and too tight and um, milk cannot follow the normal path through the GI tract and it results in um, vomiting and malnutrition. And it is very, it's fairly common. It's one to two um, per 1,000 live births in Denmark. So there have been a few studies um, in the past related to um, breastfeeding and other formula feeding in pyloric stenosis. Um, But although a lot is known about this condition um, in terms of the natural history it takes and the the treatment, its etiology is is not entirely clear. And some previous studies have shown that um, there might be some environmental factors playing into it and early feeding practices should be considered um, so we can find out if there are risk factors that we can act, act upon. So um, pyloric stenosis is much more common in boys, and so that suggests a genetic component. Um, but some previous studies have showed that the incidence has changed over time as formula feeding and breastfeeding rates have changed in different countries. This study was actually done by taking some nationwide survey data and combining it with diagnosis data to find how many babies in a a national birth cohort had been diagnosed with pyloric stenosis. Um, The Danish national birth cohort enrolled over 100,000 pregnancies between 1996 and 2002, and... um, 
The women in the survey were questioned twice during pregnancy and twice after delivery at six months and 18 months by telephone. The study that I'm talking about today had inclusion criteria that included being a single-born infant in the Danish national birth cohort and having a mother who answered the questions about feeding practice at the six-month interview. There were 70,148 infants that met those criteria. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty large population. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's really a, the biggest study that has been done addressing this issue. The um, the six month interview included questions um, about whether the moms were currently breastfeeding, about how long they had fully breastfed their children, and about how old their children were when they stopped breastfeeding completely. Interestingly, all the infants who were not fully breastfed were labeled as bottle-fed infants. Yeah, we can talk about that a little later, huh? (laughs) Yeah. So so, um, the 70,000 infants were followed um, for four months, during which time 65 of the infants had surgery for pyloric stenosis, and 91% of them were boys. The... Authors found that of the 65 cases, 29 were bottle-fed before their diagnosis of pyloric stenosis, and among those who were ever breastfed, um, the median age for exposure to first bottle feeding was 91 days for those who got pyloric stenosis and 122 days for those who did not. And the authors found that the overall risk for infants who were bottle-fed compared to those who were not bottle-fed was four and a half times, um, they were four and a half times more likely to have pyloric stenosis. Wow, that's a pretty big, that's a pretty significant difference to have to have that high of a risk um, if, uh, you're, if you're bottle-feeding your baby versus breastfeeding your baby. Although this is um, an association, right, but not necessarily cause-effect. Actually, at the end of the study, the authors talked about the possibility that um, if babies were beginning to get sick with the symptoms of pyloric stenosis, that that could have caused problems with breastfeeding, which led to bottle feeding, and that could be confused with um, the bottle feeding coming first and causing the pyloric stenosis, but they seem to think that the the time course made that unlikely. And one of the big efforts they made in this study was to try to um, understand the timing of exposure to first bottle feeding and how that related to um, pyloric stenosis. In general, there were no significant differences in the risk between babies that were both breast and bottle fed those who were formerly breastfed and those who had never been breastfed. And so any exposure to bottle feeding um, had the same risk. And also so, there was... So you're saying that um, if a baby bottle fed um, via hum- with human milk, the risk was greater than if the baby um, was breastfed without a bottle? Well, they were not able to determine that because none of the babies who were breastfed human milk... There were so few. There were only 48 
in the study, and there were 70,000 babies. Oh, okay. But none of those babies had pyloric stenosis. Okay, but it's hard to so see because it's, it's one in one to two per thousand. And, yeah. And, yeah, so okay. they don't specifically have any information for us about human milk versus formula in the bottle. But what they did um, show, which had been shown in a, a previous study, was that if you were getting any feedings through a bottle, you had this increased risk for pyloric stenosis. I see. So let's talk a little bit about bottle feeding. They call these babies um, either bottle fed or breastfed, but boy, in this country, I would bet in my practice, a good 30 to 40% of women who are breastfeeding either do partially or fully um, do partial or full feedings via bottle with their human milk. So we have a lot to look at in this country, which is also very mixed racially, to see if there would be that association. So, Anne, I noticed that you have a really interesting study today, which is addressing epidural anesthesia during labor and yeah. the impact on delivery and yeah. breastfeeding. Yeah. So uh, this is an Italian study that was done by an author, Salvatore Ghizo, and his associates. He looked at epidural analgesia during labor and wanted to look at the impact on delivery outcome, the neonatal well-being, and early breastfeeding um, experiences. So the issue is that we really don't know how labor analgesia affects the mode of delivery and its impact on how well babies nurse right after birth. There was a study that was done by Cochrane, uh, which is a big, what we call systematic review that looks at, like, looks at all the studies and comes closest to the quote-unquote truth in literature, we feel. Um, and that study indicated that epidural analgesia had no statistical significant impact on the risk of C-section or the effect on the APGAR scores, which are the scores of well-being that we give to uh, babies when they are immediately born. But a lot of the studies that were included in that big study were pretty small, and it was. And when you take a bunch of small studies, put them together, it's always hard to feel really secure about that knowledge. However, some studies have shown that there is an association, but not necessarily a cause and effect relationship between having an epidural and um, and that epidural having a decreased um, uh, causing decreased success with breastfeeding. Um, and then other studies have shown that there's a lack of effect be- between having an epidural and having trouble breastfeeding. So this study was meant to look again at this issue to see if having an epidural during labor um, would have any effect on the trend of labor, meaning like would labor go longer, would there be a C-section, on neonatal well-being at birth, and whether or not the epidural would have any effect on how well the baby nursed right after birth. So they looked at women who had their first babies and they had spontaneous vaginal deliveries. The babies were born between 38 and 42 weeks, so the babies were not um, premature at all. And the babies were considered healthy and they had good APGAR scores, meaning that they already had good well-being right after birth. So they were actually recruited after the delivery. They were the um, The researchers already knew uh, that they had these normal deliveries. 
So in the oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they looked back rather rather than recruiting women before they delivered. But then they knew that they had healthy babies, whereas if they recruited the women before the study, and then they'd have to sort out the babies that weren't doing so well. Sure. So group A had 64 women who received epidurals, and they were given, um, in the epidural um, catheter, they were given fentanyl and ropivacaine. So those are the two types of medicines that were used. And group B had 64 women, and they didn't have any sort of pain medication during labor. So at this particular hospital's be at this particular hospital after the babies are born they're typically placed skin to skin right after birth and the babies are allowed to root and are encouraged to latch onto the breast. And so they measured how well these babies did in terms of feeding. So they looked at um their reactivity, the type of cry that they had, their muscle tone, and the time between birth and breast exposure as well as the quality of breastfeeding by looking at how well the babies latched, how well they sucked, and how long they nursed for. And they found that there was really no um, significant difference between the groups in terms of how responsive the babies were, which meant that that the medication in the epidural didn't affect them neurologically. There was also no difference in the time it took uh, for the babies to get to the breast and uh, the quality of their first breastfeeding, meaning that the babies latch just as well in each group. But the babies that were exposed to the epidural didn't nurse quite as long. Um, They were more likely to spend less than 30 minutes at the breast. So 62% of the babies who were exposed to the epidural nursed for less than 30 30 minutes. However, the babies that were uh, not exposed to medication only 29% of those babies nursed for less than 30 minutes. Now, let me ask you, is this something that is well established as a marker for good feeding, is how long the first feed is? Because I haven't really encountered that before as a measure of breastfeeding success. I've used latch and some of the other things you've talked about, but not really how long the first feeding lasts. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. You know, baby friendly, for example, the baby friendly hospital initiative doesn't talk about the duration of time that the baby should be at the breast. I don't really know that literature why. I don't I don't know. Um I think it it often probably it probably depends on when the staff decides that they need to move the family. Yeah, that happens a lot when I work. <laughs> yeah. So, so in this study they also found that uh, stage two labor, which is the time from when moms are completely dilated to when the baby's delivered, was about 10 minutes longer in those who had the epidural, um, which is consistent with other studies in the literature. So, according to the authors, they were their only their main concern about this study is that it's not a true, um, truly there, there's not like a true control group there because the group that didn't have any anesthesia, um, you can't fake an epidural. And so sure. it's not it's not a, tr- a truly fair um, comparison. You're not going to have a placebo arm for a study like this. Right, yeah. But it's pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty close. It's the closest you can get probably. And then, um, and then the other thing is that there are so many other factors that determine how well babies do with breastfeeding. So, um, they weren't able to quantitate the number of babies that were tongue-tied, babies that may have had some oral defensiveness, moms who had flat nipples, 
um, moms who were uncertain about whether or not they were really thrilled about breastfeeding, that kind of thing. Because, you know, you know, a lot of moms will say, well, give breastfeeding a try and see how it goes. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and I think they also made the point, which I thought was really interesting, that, you know, there are people who tolerate labor better than others and that affects their decision whether or not to get an epidural and that those personality traits that lead them to make those decisions may also be affecting how well they handle difficulties they encounter when they breastfeed later on, not necessarily at this first feeding. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, And then the other issue, which I think is really interesting, is that the Cochrane Review in 2005 um, probably dealt with studies that used all kinds of different anesthesia. And I think as anesthesia has gotten so much more refined, where the relative dose for moms is probably much lower, um, we may be seeing less and less of an effect on epidur- from epidurals on infant feeding. Whereas back, like I remember, back in the late 80s, early 90s with epidurals, women virtually couldn't walk for hours after that epidural because their legs were basically paralyzed. And mm-hmm. so um, studies back then, we may have seen much more of an effect of the epidural medication on the baby than we do now. So you can't, So some of these studies are comparing apples to oranges in terms of the effect of the medication. So anyway, it's. Um, I think that we can overall say that, at least in some institutions, it's not the end of the world in terms of breastfeeding if women end up with an within, uh, epidural. Yeah, I, I have to say that this is definitely a hot topic where I have been. Um, people discussing whether or not this is a problem for breastfeeding, and I did find the study to be reassuring. Although um, I wonder about this judging the immediate first feed only as opposed to looking also a little further out at the whole first day or first two days because, you know, sometimes you see babies that are um, having effects from the delivery right away, but other babies you feel like, you know, they do okay for a few hours, but then they sleep for 24 hours. You know what right, I mean? right, right. That's true. Although there is good uh, literature that... Um, being having that successful first feed in those first couple hours is strongly associated with um, successful breastfeeding at the time of discharge, Absolutely. which is why the yeah, which is why baby true. yeah, which is why baby friendly has that as as one of its steps uh, yes. in it yeah. So well, great. Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, these studies and talking with uh, with me about these studies, and uh, we will talk again in a couple weeks. Sounds good. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Take care. Bye If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.